0: City, WLCC, Brandon,
1: Faith Talk Tampa, download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey.
0: The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded.
1: Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote this, an eyewitness of the temple. He wrote, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. So it was absolutely breathtaking. And uh, we can really understand why one of the disciples would say to him, Rabbi Look at this, these buildings. Have you ever seen anything like it?
2: To imagine what Herod's temple looked like. However, to the Jewish people, it was much more than a spectacle. It was the center of their society. Welcome, this is Verse by Verse, where we feature the teaching of Pastor Steve Kreloff. As we continue with our series Birth Pains for the Kingdom, we are going to learn some interesting things about the temple. One of the things Jesus said to his disciples was regarding the destruction of the temple. And we're going to hear about that on today's program. The disciples, of course, were horrified to hear that. And I don't want to say any more and steal Pastor Steve's thunder. So let's jump into today's verse-by-verse program.
1: Herod was a famous builder. And you go to Israel, you see that there are remains of some of the things that Herod built. He, he was an architect. He was a builder. And he, he built a lot for a few reasons. He built in order to, to win over the favor of the Jewish people, especially the temple, because he said he was the king of the Jews, but he, was, he wasn't even Jewish. He was an Edomite. And the Jewish people never accepted him. They despised him, and so he wanted to win them over. So he didn't just build the temple. What he did is he expanded upon it. The temple was there. He just expanded and, and made it a magnificent uh, temple. Herod also built many buildings to keep people uh, busy, so there'd be no rebellions. And the reason I know that is because when we were in Israel and we were stu- we were at Masada, which is on the mountain by the Dead Sea, which is a mountain fortress, uh, our tour guide said that. And I, I believe either myself or someone asked him about why did he build so much? And he said, if you keep people busy all the time, they're too tired to revolt against you. So Herod was very busy building, and he, one of the things he built was the temple complex. Do you know how long it took to build this? Let's turn to John chapter 2. Let me, let me show you how long it, it uh, took to build this temple. John chapter 2, verse 19 Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. He said this at the beginning of his ministry, not referring to the physical temple in Jerusalem, but referring to himself as the temple of God, where the Spirit of God would abide. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? Now, they didn't understand what he was talking about. The temple was still being built. It had already been 46 years in building, and it would continue for another uh, many years. To about 64 AD, it was finally completed. Uh, you see, they didn't—they didn't have Ken Beard there, and some of you know Ken Beard. He would have—he would have done it in three weeks, guarantee. it. But uh, didn't have him there, so it took a lot of years. And uh, it was absolutely gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. It was built with massive white stones. If, if you go to Jerusalem, once again, you will see that most of the buildings are in the same stone, are, are made with the same stones. They're a gorgeous white stone. Uh, massive white stones, they, they weighed up to 100 tons, They were about the size of boxcars. These were massive, huge, and the stones were polished and decorated with gold. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote this, an eyewitness of the temple. He wrote, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. So it was absolutely breathtaking. And uh, we can really understand why one of the disciples would say to him, Rabbi, look at this, these buildings. Have you ever seen anything like it? But there is more to the statement than just aesthetic beauty. Matthew chapter 23, we're going to put this together because Mark doesn't tell us about this, but Matthew does. And in Matthew's gospel, the end of, of chapter 23, beginning at verse 37, this is, uh, this is a parallel passage to what we have been studying in Mark. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, now listen, your house is being left to you desolate. Meaning not only Jerusalem, but the temple, that is the house of God. It is left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Since Israel has rejected Jesus as Messiah, the Lord was about to leave Jerusalem and about to leave the temple area. And this magnificent temple complex was being abandoned. And that's what Jesus said. That's what he meant. We said it's desolate, it's being abandoned by God. It's abandoned. And and this disciple in Mark chapter thirteen can't understand why. Why leave this temple now? Why would God's house become abandoned and alone and and, and desolate? Why? That's the background. That's why he is saying, Lord, why would you leave this place and abandon it to judgment look at these massive stones and this gorgeous place why he can't understand it see he's not just saying that out of the blue like isn't this a nice place I've never been to a place as nice as this what he's he's saying in the context of Christ saying your house is left to you desolate he's saying I don't understand this why would you leave it why would you leave it in judgment verse two here's Christ's response. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. That's a real shocker. I don't think he expected to hear that. It must have just absolutely blown this disciple away. In fact, it probably blew all the disciples away. He said, not only will the temple be abandoned by God, it'll also be destroyed. Be destroyed. Most gorgeous set of buildings they have ever seen is going to be destroyed. And it was destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. The Jewish people revolted against Rome's uh, domination of them, and General Titus came in with the Roman legion, And he destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Actually, from my research, I understand that he did not want to destroy the temple. He wanted it to remain. But one of his soldiers uh, did it anyway, set the temple on fire against his orders. Fire was used to destroy the temple complex. Soldiers leveled the buildings in Jerusalem to the ground. And about an estimated one million Jewish people were killed. Greedy soldiers then pulled the stones apart, trying to reclaim the melted gold. Josephus said later that no person visiting this site would ever know that a temple existed there. See, what Jesus said was absolutely true. No stone will even exist. No stone will be on top of another stone. Now, you may wonder, you may have seen what is known as the Wailing Wall or what is called the Western Wall. It used to be called the Wailing Wall Wall of uh, the temple complex because the Jewish people would go there and wail because they wanted all of Jerusalem. In 67, uh, 1967, they got all of Jerusalem, and now they call it the Western Wall because it was on the western side of the temple. It's no longer a place to, to wail. Uh, you may wonder, well, isn't that still in existence? Doesn't that uh, deny this prophecy? Jesus said, "No stone will be will be upon another." No, it doesn't deny this prophecy. the The wailing or Western Wall was not part of the temple complex. It really wasn't. It wasn't part of the temple. The, it was the western retaining wall for the platform on which the temple stood. It really was not the temple. It's just. It's really not. It wasn't even a sacred spot. Back in Christ's time, people have made it a sacred spot. It is a wall, was a magnificent wall, it, but it's just a wall that held up the, te- the temple complex. It wasn't part of the temple. So this prophecy came to pass. Now, I, I'm sure that the disciples were absolutely amazed and shocked and dumbfounded when Christ said these words. He spoke about the temple's destruction but there is a sense in which they had to be encouraged, and their ears had to perk up when they heard this. You say, how could, you be, how could they have been encouraged about hearing this? Well, I'll explain in a moment. This led to asking Christ two questions in verses 3 and, and then 4. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us... When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Now, when they reached the Mount of Olives, remember that one disciple said, Lord, what magnificent buildings, as they were leaving the temple and then leaving Jerusalem, they walked these two miles, they climbed the Mount of Olives... They reached, they, they got to the top of it, and it's about 150 feet higher than the city of Jerusalem. It was then outside of Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem is much larger, so it is inside of Jerusalem, but it was outside then. And they could sit down, and from their vantage point, about 150 feet higher than the, than Jerusalem, the temple complex, they could sit down, and they could just look across the valley, which is basically like across the street, like a big boulevard for us. And they could uh, see the the sun setting on the temple complex. And it must have been just a gorgeous, breathtaking sight as the sun set over the temple in the city. And while they were looking at this beautiful scene, four disciples approached the Lord. They had probably been discussing this all the way back. To Jerusalem, four of them, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, privately ask Christ a couple of questions that are related to each other. Question number one, and this will open up for you the Olivet Discourse. Number one, when will these things be? What they are asking is, when will the temple be destroyed? That's what he was talking about, the destruction of the temple. And, and they want to know, when will the temple be destroyed? Question number two, what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? In other words, how will we know when this destruction is going to happen? What sign will there be? In what way will you let us know and indicate that the destruction of the temple is coming? You see, it is critical to understand that in the disciples' thinking, remove yourself now from from the theology that you've heard and, and all of that, and try to think of the way they thought in their minds, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the establishing of God's kingdom on earth were all connected. That's, that's where they're coming from. In their minds, they thought it would take place at the same time. When Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed, they, they figured that that's when Messiah would set up his kingdom. That's really all they're asking. They're putting it together when will you bring this present age to a close and establish your messianic kingdom? And they assumed that at the close of the age, Jerusalem will be destroyed, and therefore the temple will be destroyed. Now, there's a reason they believe that, a very biblical reason. They were wrong, but they also were on the right track. In Zechariah, you don't need to turn there, but Zechariah chapter 14, one of the last books of the Old Testament, Zechariah spoke, a Jewish Old Testament prophet spoke of Jerusalem being uh, invaded and then the Lord coming to establish his kingdom. I'll read this to you, verses 1 through 3. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. In other words, whatever they took back. Uh, they took from you, is was going to be given back to you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. It says, and says in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem, and and he will come, and the the valley will split, and he will establish his kingdom. So naturally, the Jewish disciples are thinking that that's going to come now. However, Zechariah was primarily referring to to, uh, not what happened in 70 AD, but what is going to happen in another time period later on, just before the Lord Jesus returns, just before Messiah returns. So it's very natural, very normal for the disciples to think that the time is now. The the kingdom is coming. And remember, these guys had to be encouraged. They had been waiting for the kingdom for a long time. And Jesus came saying that he is the Messiah. The kingdom of God is here. John the Baptist said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So these guys have assumed that it's coming. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter uh, 24, uh this this becomes apparent. Matthew 24, verse 3, it says, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Matthew makes it even clearer that that's what they meant. When the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, we know that's when you're, you're coming, so tell us, what will the sign be? Now, the disciples were wrong in their thinking. They're on the right track, but they were wrong in their thinking because Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. It will once again be invaded, but not yet, in 70 A.D., and Jesus still hasn't established his kingdom on earth. But their questions gave Jesus the opportunity to give us incredible insight into the final years before his return to earth. That's what the Olivet Discourse is about. Even though they were wrong... Let me put it this way, they, they were confused. The Lord Jesus makes it very clear to us what the final years and the final days will be going right up to his kingdom and his return. The Olivet Discourse is about a period of time which is commonly known as the Tribulation Period. The tribulation period. You could label your Bible, instead of the Olivet Discourse, I don't know how they they label it, and my Bible says things to come, you could put on there the tribulation period. The reason we call it that is in verse 19, Jesus said, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never shall. Now, it's really not that important what we call it. It's really not that important. What is important is that we understand its concept. And here's where I'm going to just divert a little bit from the text, because I realize that some of you have no background of prophecy, or very little background of prophecy, and you have to get this to understand Mark 13. The Old Testament prophets wrote about this period of time. They did not call it the Tribulation Period. That's a good name, but they didn't call it that they called it, specifically Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, they called it the time of Jacob's trouble. It is a horrible, it will be a horrible time for Israel. It's a time when God once again will turn his attention and his program, turn it back to the Jewish people in Israel and through a series of physical devastations, disasters, natural uh, horrors, persecutions, and catastrophes. He will bring suffering upon Israel and judgment to the world. Why will he bring suffering upon Israel? Uh, Not only as a judgment uh, upon them, but also to bring them back to the Lord, to bring them to the Lord, we should say. Uh, Israel's sufferings will lead her to salvation in Messiah, and uh, that's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, and then all Israel will be saved. They will be so beaten down and 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 suffer so that combined with the Spirit of God opening their eyes and drawing them to the Savior, they will finally recognize who their Messiah is, and they will embrace him. So this is the time of Jacob's trouble. I'd like you to notice verse 8. Jesus said at the end of verse 8, these things, meaning the things that will take place, are merely the beginning of birth pangs, or birth pains. He's talking about labor pains, the, the sharp pains are, are, uh, or birth pains are the labor pains that a woman experiences just before she gives birth to a child. That's the concept here. So as we enter, listen, you'll, you'll, you'll catch it if you catch this. As we enter the tribulation period, Israel will suffer with labor pains. Suffer deeply. Compare compared to a woman in travail. She will suffer labor pains that will lead to the birth of the Messianic kingdom. These pains are not in vain. They are like a woman who's about to give birth. Only Israel, and the Lord really, is about to give birth out of the tribulation period to his kingdom. The labor pains will give birth to the kingdom. By the way, ancient Jewish writers often use the phrase birth pains to refer to the end times and to Israel, so this is not out of the ordinary. They would understand this. This is the Jewish language. Now, the Olivet Discourse is really about the birth pains in the tribulation period, or you could say it's the signs that will take place leading up to the Lord's coming. That's what they asked for, didn't they? They said, what is the sign? Well, there really, as as I look at this and study this, uh, there really is no one major sign. There's a series of signs. So you could call it signs of Christ's second coming. You could call it birth pangs or birth pains leading up to the messianic kingdom. Whatever you call it, understand the concept. We're talking about the tribulation period. Now, I want you to understand, for a very specific reason, the purpose or the Jewish context of the Olivet Discourse. And uh, you may wonder, where is he going with this? You'll find out in a moment. There is a very important lesson here, and, to, and true to lay hold of, of the concept of the Jewish context of the Olivet Discourse. What we are about to study concerning the tribulation period has absolutely nothing to do with the church. Absolutely nothing to do with the church. The church is not in Mark 13. Christ's Jewish disciples, and this is the context, listen, Christ's Jewish disciples are not asking about the church. Jesus has mentioned the church in Matthew chapter 16. It won't start until Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Believe me, the disciples don't know anything about the church except Jesus mentioned it. They don't care about the church. They don't know about the church. They're, they don't understand about the church, and they won't for a while. And the church is not in view here. The context is this: four Jewish men ask the Jewish Messiah about the destruction of the Jewish temple and the establishment of the kingdom promised to the Jewish people. It's not about the church. The suffering of labor pains are Israel's suffering during the tribulation period and the whole discourse has a Jewish flavor. Let me, let me show you that. He speaks of false messiahs in verse 5 and 6. He says to it that, uh, uh, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Matthew makes it very clear that they will, say, that, that they will claim to be the messiah. That's a Jewish concept. Gentiles often don't think of that. They, they, they usually don't. That's a Jewish concept. He says in verse 21, And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, meaning Messiah. Behold, uh, he is here. Do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise, and so forth. Speaking of a Jew in Jewish flavor, notice verse 9. Be on guard, for they will deliver you up to the courts, and you will be, and he's speaking of the religious courts, the Jewish religious courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. That's a Jewish concept. You don't go to synagogue. It's a Jewish concept. Notice verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, and that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The only people who really understand the abomination of of desolation is those Jewish people who understood the book of Daniel. That's taken right out out of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. So he is speaking to Jewish men in a Jewish context about Israel. He is not talking about the church. I do not believe that Mark 13 has anything to do with the church, because by the time the tribulation period begins, the church will be gone. Theologians call it the rapture of the church. The Bible doesn't use that term, uh, but, but that's a good term. The, the term rapture is a Latin word, or comes from a Latin word, which means to snatch or catch away. Uh, we, we use it when we say someone might be enraptured with someone's beauty. Uh, it sort of just takes my breath away. That, that's, how, that's sort of the concept. It, it means to catch away. Before the tribulation starts, the church will be snatched or caught away from the earth. Now, Jesus said, John 14, we, I read it in the pastoral prayer, just before the pastoral prayer, Jesus said, I'm going, but I'll come again to receive you, that where I am, there you may be also. This is not referring to His coming back to the earth. This is referring to to us leaving and Him receiving us. This is not talking about us receiving Him back on the earth. This is referring to us leaving and He receiving us in the clouds. The
2: abomination of desolations, the rapture, the tribulation period. We have been learning a lot of interesting things about the end times. Now, please keep in mind the most important thing Pastor Steve said. It was right at the end. I'm going, but I'll come again to receive you that where I am, there you may be also. That is our great hope. And we should not only be looking for Christ's return, we should be living as if he was coming today. Pastor Steve Kreloff will be back with us next time on Verse by Verse, and we will continue to study the birth pains for the kingdom. I should mention that Pastor Steve is the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. And if you'd like more information about Lakeside, such as location or service times, please surf over to lakesidechapel.com. And we hope you can join us next time on Verse by Verse.